Hello, and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything just outside the norm. I'm your host, Sean, joined by my fellow co-host, Eric. Hey, everybody. So today we're going to be discussing a couple of uh, mysteries, unsolved mysteries, um, related to people being in boxes. Um, So these are listener-suggested episodes, and they're both pretty interesting stories that we both been doing a fair amount of research on pretty pretty good mysteries yeah both i mean they definitely have a lot of twists and turns and a lot of different theories so excellent mysteries as far as i'm concerned the first mystery is called the boy in the box pretty well-known story it's also called america's unknown child and it was really popular investigation back in the 1950s and this was suggested by one of our listeners, Brawlio. So this is a mystery that's still trying to get unraveled even to this day. And it's been thoroughly reported on by the media. And at the time of the incident, there were pretty much flyers posted all over the place in Philadelphia where this occurred. Um, again, a very popular investigation. And anyone in the area at the time was pretty familiar what, uh, with what was going on here. And there are a fair amount of websites dedicated to trying to solve this mystery. And it takes place in the 1950s in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Susquehanna Road was a narrow little strip of country road that ran for about a half mile through a wooded area in Philadelphia. And it's here that the nude body of a young boy was found. He's believed to be about four to six years old, um, had blonde hair, blue eyes, and the boy was found wrapped in a flannel blanket lying face up in a cardboard box only a few feet away from the side of the road. And you can look up the crime scene photo of the box where it was found. It's definitely pretty unnerving. Definitely. So the person who actually discovered the body was a 26-year-old college student. He was named Frederick Benonis. And he actually admitted to having discovered the body of the boy actually the day before he reported it. And what happened was he'd been driving along the road and suddenly he saw a rabbit run across the street. So I don't don't really know if this is what people did during the time, but he decided to get out of the car and go chase the rabbit. So this was... I guess just a different time period. That was his story that he came up with for the police. Yeah, and it is a little bit suspicious. I mean, who knows? Maybe back in those days he was just hungry, trying to catch something to eat. (laughs) I don't know. It's a little weird, but a little suspicious, I agree. But So when he got out of his car, he came across a few muskrat traps and sort of investigated those along with the the rabbit chase. And when he discovered the body, um, it was actually around the same area as the muskrat traps, just lying inside some cardboard box. At first glance, he actually thought it was just like a doll or something, but pretty soon he realized that it was, in fact, the body of a young lad. So later on, he got questioned by the police as to why he waited a day to report the case. This is kind of the obvious question. And it was discovered that Benonis had 
frequented the area in an effort to kind of spy on some of the girls in a local school known as the Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls. Just being a little pervert, I guess, trying to catch a glimpse of some young lady doing who knows what. I don't really know what his true intentions were. Perhaps Sean has a little bit of insight from personal experience. Yeah, well, just to him, that seems a more likely story than suddenly getting out of your car to chase a rabbit through the woods. Yeah, I mean, you you can see why he would just kind of make that up. I'm picturing kind of a goofy guy, not very smart, um, young, trying to spy on some girls. Nothing too special there. He definitely doesn't seem to be a good suspect for murdering this boy, especially given um, some evidence that I'll talk about later. Apparently the boy had been laying there for a while. Yeah. Um, But so when he first came upon the body, he initially thought he would keep the discovery to himself. However, later he got kind of convicted when he was listening to the news or something and heard about another boy that had gone missing. So he felt bad, was convicted, and went and confessed it to a couple of priests, and they encouraged him to report the incident immediately. So he later submitted to a polygraph test, which dismissed him of any suspicions of being involved in the case. Additionally, it was later discovered that the owner of the muskrat traps had found the boy two days earlier as well. However, he did not report the incident because his muskrat traps were illegal and he didn't want to get questioned about that. Yeah, It seems to me that whoever did this crime might have maybe actually wanted the body to be found pretty easily. Uh, The fact that this cardboard box containing the boy was only, you know, a few yards off Susquehanna Road instead of, you know, buried in a shallow grave or dumped off deep in the woods suggests to me that perhaps whoever was behind it Wanted people to know this boy died? Yeah, maybe. I mean, who knows? Of course, at the time, there was probably little concern. I mean, this was in the 50s. He probably wasn't, whoever it was, probably wasn't very concerned that he'd get caught in the first place, he or she. But yeah, who knows? I mean, that's definitely... I just don't know why else you would... I mean, it's it's hard for me to put myself in the mindset, but like, if you had a body, you know... Unless you want it, you don't care if it's found or not, you're going to get a more hiding spot than just going a few feet off the road and just throwing it there. Well, the body was actually found in pretty good condition. It was kind of unnervingly like clean and meticulous and well-kept. The boy's skin was clean, his nails were neatly trimmed, and his arms were folded carefully across his torso. His body was about three and a half feet tall and he only weighed 30 pounds so his height would have estimated him to be about three years old however his weight would put him in an average of about two years old and that's that's only a year difference but at such a young age it's pretty significant so his his weight was definitely not keeping up with his height so he was pretty malnourished Um, also worth noting his hair had been cut in sort of a crude fashion kind of poorly done haircut almost as if somebody had been trying to maybe adjust his identity and make it make him more difficult to recognize um and the trimmings from his hair had still clung to his body which means his hair was likely cut at or around the time of his death or even 
shortly before. Yeah, I don't quite get the changing his identity. I mean, if you're trying to hide whoever this boy is, then again, why do you just leave him out in the open to be found in the first place? And unless they were actually planning on taking him out someplace very secluded, but then got nervous carrying around this dead boy, and so they just decided to drop him at the first quiet place they drove to. So it's kind of like conflicted. You have the hastily done haircut, which could potentially hide the identity, but then again, you're just leaving the body out in the middle of the open. So Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, another kind of strange fact that doesn't really make sense to me was that the palms of his hands and the soles of his feet were wrinkled in kind of a manner that would indicate that they had been submerged in water shortly before his death. So, I don't know. I mean, so far it seems to kind of paint a very intricate picture. However, it's trying to get all the clues to align that we'll actually be able to figure out what happened. Um, the boy's body was actually covered in scars and bruises. The bruises appeared to have been inflicted all around the same time. And a lot of the bruises were on his head, which is what the cause of death was. He had been hit in the head multiple times. And there were a total of seven scars on his body. Three of the seven appeared to have been the result of some sort of surgical procedure as they had healed and quite cleanly, cleanly, and they were pretty faint. Um, also, the scars were on his chest, groin, elbow, ankle, and chin. And at the time of his discovery, it was kind of like late winter weather. I think it was in late February, which kind of made it difficult to determine how long the child had been deceased. It could have been a couple of days to a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I figure, I don't know. I mean, if this guy had, one of the guys had muskrat traps all around, and then the pervert guy was always sneaking around trying to get a glimpse of the girls. I figure it, it probably wasn't kept out there too long if they already stumbled across it in a manner of like within a day of each other. Um, so I think it was probably maybe a few days, but not more than a few weeks. I know what you're saying. The fact that the, the two people stumbled across it in a couple of days, but I mean, muskrat traps can be out there for a pretty long time. I'd imagine. So, I mean, who knows? It could have been out there a while. That's true. And I mean, maybe someone else, stumbled across it earlier and decided just to get out of there. Yeah, yeah, and just, just not report it, yeah. Yeah, we just don't know. But, I mean, um, I'm no muskrat trapper, but yeah. who knows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I also read that while they were inspecting the body, the doctors used an ultraviolet light and kind of just scanning the body. And while they were checking out the eyes, they saw that the left eye fluoresced brightly blue, which is a sign, which was a sign that some kind of special diagnostic dye had been applied, the type to use chronic eye ailments. So maybe he had like an infection or something. And then also X-rays show that the boy had no signs of any current or previous bone trauma or fracture. So to me, those facts kind of suggest that I don't think the boy probably wasn't violently abused or neglected or at least not until near the time of his death. So he did have like a lot of bruises and damage all happening at one time, but there wasn't really any medical signs that he had been, you know, beaten or abused before that moment. So, I mean, perhaps he was pretty well cared for 
up until whatever happened that caused his death. True, except for the fact that he was pretty severely malnourished. But, I mean, I'm not sure that being malnourished at that time period wasn't uncommon in this area in Philadelphia, so who knows. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I agree with you. He he didn't – the x-rays didn't show any signs of, like, bone fractures or anything, so – and then he had those, uh, like the surgical scars that clean that uh, <clears throat> that healed nicely. So I mean, it's it seems like he'd been he had a few medical things done to him. Yeah, and so I see what you're saying. That make that's a good point. Yeah. Um. So getting into the details of how the boy was found, he was in a cardboard carton that had been used to contain a bassinet that was sold by J C Penny Company at the time. And they were actually able to track the date that the box had been purchased. And on this date, 12 boxes had been sold from JCPenney. 11 of them were accounted for. However, one to this day um, was never located. So the FBI inspected the box carefully. However, there wasn't really much other evidence found. There was um, some white paint residue found on the box, but all that means is that the bassinet was white, so we still can't find the bassinet. Um, interestingly, there was a corduroy hat that was found nearby to where the body was located. This hat was also traced back to the manufacturer, and the person that sold it was able to recall a man who allegedly resembled the boy, came in to purchase the cap. Um, however, there was little other details to distinguish the man. Unfortunately, it would appear that this would be the closest anyone would come to solving the case, as all the other surrounding evidence would lead to dead ends. There was a white handkerchief, also some like shoes and other pieces of clothing that were found within a reasonable distance from the boy's body. I think within like a mile or two miles, all this random stuff was found. However, nothing that would lead the investigation anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that could have just been just random stuff or trash that had been people throwing out of their cars. I mean, just some small country road, so it's not too hard to imagine that people just kind of, you know, just junk just accumulates over time there. Definitely. The autopsy actually only led to more questions because what they did, they took some samples of his organs and his blood and examined them, and there really weren't any signs of drugs or intoxication. However... There was a mysterious brown substance that coated the inside of the boy's esophagus. Some report that this could be consistent with the boy having vomited shortly before his death. However, it's difficult to, to confirm this. Yeah, when I was reading that, I figured it was either, I mean, maybe it was some type of like poison or some kind of substance, some weird thing that he swallowed and that's what was coating or if it was and that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, maybe they made him choke down some sort of poison, but that doesn't really make sense A because the the cause of death was blows to the head and yeah. Also, you know, it would have turned up something in the toxicology when they tested his blood, you'd think. That's true. I, I was thinking that. Well, I mean, I guess if it was vomit, I mean, if they're bashing his head, I assume, you know, nausea has a side effect of, you know. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Head trauma, so maybe like they hit him a few times and he kind of threw up a little bit, even maybe as he was dying, and that's just, it just kind of stayed in his esophagus. Possibly, yeah. 
there's another explanation for it that we'll discuss in a little bit. Um, but nothing else unusual was reported on the autopsy. Since the discovery of the boy's body, numerous people, including groups of private citizens and others, have tried to contribute to the investigation. There was a massive hunt for clues undertaken by the local police department, and that included 320 police officers. The FBI also got involved, and they published the case in their monthly bulletin, and they actually exhumed the boy's remains to perform DNA analysis on one of his teeth. The case was also aired on America's Most Wanted, but nothing has come up as a result. Yeah, this is probably one of the more popular cases for you know so-called armchair detectives, kind of like us, kind of like guys who just like to research all these weird mysteries and look at all the clues and see if they can piece something together. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, there are like a number of websites that are just completely devoted to this case and a bunch of like message boards and stuff where people are trying to post their own theories and share clues. This is a really big case. Yeah, this this has intrigued people very deeply for almost 60 years now. So there are a couple of theories associated with this case. Um, one of them revolves around a guy named George Brumall, who is a Marine. And he actually told police that he believed the unknown boy could be his eight-year-old brother. When he visited the bo- the boy's body in the morgue, his suspicions in his mind were confirmed. Brumall, who had recently returned from overseas, said he was one of 18 children. Good God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. He last saw his family when they lived in Philadelphia, which is where all this had taken place. At that time, he said the family was about to move to the West Coast, but two of the younger children were left with an older brother who lived in the northeast section of the city. Apparently, one of the brothers was missing, and they weren't able to find him. And this is the one that George Brumall thought was the boy in the box. However, detectives eventually found the missing brother alive and perfectly well in California, which means there's no way that the boy in the box was related to Brumall. Yeah, I, mean, I suspect that he wasn't the only case of mistaken identity. I mean, as you said, like, you know, flyers were up all over the place. There were hundreds of investigators looking and spreading the word. So, I mean, I'm sure everyone in the area who either knew or had some kind of missing boy around that age were probably saying, hey, maybe this is him. Yeah, definitely. And as we'll get into later, a lot of the people were just doing it to kind of get their 15 minutes of fame. Another theory is that the boy had been a member of a foster home run by the Nicolettis, who were a middle-aged couple, and they had a relative 20-year-old female who is named Anna Nagel. And this stone mansion was located only one and a half miles away from where the boy was found. So this would naturally offer a pretty, pretty logical explanation. However, it was confirmed that at the time of the boy's disappearance, there were only three boys and five girls at the home, and all of them were accounted for. One of the investigators, in desperation, actually reached out to one of the local mediums in the area, 
and the medium stated that she would be able to identify someone with a piece of metal that was somehow linked to them. So the investigator named Remington Bristow, it's a pretty awesome name, um, <laughs> he actually had a pretty clever idea. He went and got a couple staples out of the box that the young boy was found in. He obtained these staples and took them to the medium, and she did her little jig and instructed him to search for a large house with wooden railings. And then she went on to provide further clues that kind of matched the description of the, the foster home. And when Mr. Remington Bristow questioned the Nicolettis, they denied knowing anything about the boy, naturally. However, interestingly, when Bristow was in the house, he found a bassinet that was similar to the one sold by J.C. Penney. Additionally, it was theorized that the boy could have been the illegitimate son of the girl Anna Nagel, the 20-year-old that, that worked with the Nicolettis. She was actually mentally retarded and had multiple other illegitimate pregnancies in the past. So without being able to produce any hard evidence Mr. Remington Bristow unfortunately took this theory to his grave. The fact that we're still talking about this case has a lot to do with Mr. Remington Bristow. He, I mean, pretty much obsessed with this case for decades and we just would not give it up. And, I mean, he he's one of the reasons why this mystery is so well known. Is he kept pushing it for... I think like 30 years or so before he actually died. It's just, this is kind of his lifelong obsession. Um, I guess when he wasn't working on other cases, he was just trying to solve this one. Um, I guess he was kind of desperate trying to use mediums and unconventional techniques to try to, you know, pin the blame on this foster home. Definitely kind of shady. I mean, I know when I was first reading through this case, one of the first things I thought of was, you know, a foster home or some kind of rundown family or something who either accidentally or, you know, was running some kind of weird operation with kids and then just beat this guy to death. I mean, he definitely played a huge role in getting publicity for this uh, case and, it it just blows my mind that he had to take this to his grave, you know, that really sucks. But I mean, I think using the sort of unorthodox method with the with the psychic, I don't know, I think it was a pretty convincing theory to me. I think there it ties up a lot of loose ends. Apparently there was a some sort of pond or body of water near the foster home where which would explain why possibly the boy's hands and feet were wrinkled. So it tied in a lot of things. And it explains a lot of the loose ends, and it sounds good, but unfortunately there was just really no evidence at all that actually linked them to the crime. I mean, it's they had the, the foster home, a bunch of kids, you know, just a mile or so away from where the body was dropped, so all that sounds pretty good, but at the end of the day you just have no proof that these people had anything to do with it. Unfortunately, you're correct. There was another theory that had some pretty strong evidence behind it, and it occurred in May of 2002. And a businesswoman known as M 
just the letter M. Wish I had a name that was just one letter. That would be pretty sweet. But she was in Cincinnati, Ohio, and she claimed her mother purchased the boy from his parents in 1954. They named the boy Jonathan. That's kind of stuff you hear, like, in, I don't know, like, bottom for a pack of cigarettes or something. Yeah. It's like, yeah. in third world, like, starving. is like, hey, can I have your boy? Here's some vegetables. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Jonathan was regularly abused, and they kind of kept him in the basement, according to M. He was described as being handicapped and could not speak. M claimed her mother killed him in February of 1957 in a fit of rage by throwing him down on the floor after he vomited in the bathtub after eating baked beans. So this would explain the brown substance in the esophagus, the vomiting, and also the blunt force trauma to the head that led to his death. Yeah. So this is pretty convincing. Um, Investigators thought this was the lead they were looking for to finally solve the case. However, after six months of attempting to corroborate her story, it was determined that M had a history of mental problems and none of the information she passed could be proven. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a shame that her word wasn't taken seriously after it was discovered that she was suffering from mental illness. Apparently at the time, she was doing pretty well, though, to manage her condition, and her doctor believed that she wouldn't make up something like this. I mean, the problem with this, as you said, besides her story, there is no evidence. No one else around the area who knew the family claimed that they ever saw a boy in the house. And if you believe Emma's story that this boy was constantly abused, I think there would have been some obvious signs that would have shown up in the autopsy. And I mean, also the fact that she did come forward with this information for a really long time is a little concerning also. So, I mean, kind of like with the foster story we just mentioned it makes sense you know it it fits the description of what happens but but once again there's just no evidence to back it up yeah it just kind of seems like another sad individual trying to get their 15 minutes of fame and that's what it was in my opinion yeah i mean and and perhaps her mental condition was afflicting her and she truly believed this was the case but it was all in her head yeah there have been numerous other stories that the missing boy has been so-and-so's brother or someone's lost child. However, all of these theories have been thoroughly and confidently dismissed, either by DNA examination or some other means. And to this day, the identity remains a complete mystery. This is certainly one of the sadder mysteries that we have covered so far over the course of this podcast. I mean, there's really nothing sadder than a dead kid. And I mean, it's it's pretty frustrating with just how many clues or leads and then loose ends that are surrounding this case. I mean, you had hundreds of people and investigators who have worked this case pretty much to death in the case of Mr. Remington, and they just end up not knowing any more than they did at the very beginning. And I read online someone saying that this case isn't just cold, it's frozen solid, which <laughs> is a pretty accurate description. Yeah. Uh, and... I mean, I it would be nice if one day this mystery was solved, but unless some type of a miracle piece of evidence turns up or someone actually has a concrete confession, it's likely that the boy in that box will go down in history as yet another mysterious case that will never have a true answer. I agree. Unfortunately so. 
So that was the story of the boy in the box, also known as America's Missing Child. Pretty pretty un- unfortunate story, very sad, even sadder given that we haven't ever solved the case. Um, so this next mystery kind of reminds me of uh, something that Sherlock Holmes would investigate. Pretty interesting, seemingly inexplicable mystery. So Sean, why don't you take it away with the moving coffins of Barbados? Alright, so the Moving Coffins are another listener-suggested mystery, and this one was sent in to us by Ashley, so thank you, Ashley. The Moving Coffins of Barbados, also known as the case of or mystery of the Chase Vault, is a mysterious urban legend surrounding a burial vault in Christchurch, Barbados. According to the local legend, whenever this Chase Vault was opened to bury another family member, All the coffins that had previously been arranged in an orderly fashion had all been moved or disturbed in some way. So this mystery has spawned numerous explanations behind it, both practical and even paranormal. But there are also many skeptics who find the whole case dubious at best. So let's just dive right into the story of the moving coffins. Let's do it. Alright, so the story basically starts in Barbados in the year 1812, so a long time ago. In the cemetery yard of the Christchurch Parish, there was a burial vault containing, at the time, three caskets. So there was a Mrs. Thomasina Goddard. She was the first who was buried in 1807. And then later the vault was purchased by the Chase family, which gives us his name that it would later be known as the Chase Vault. So Anne Maria and Dorcas Chase would be buried in the vault in the following years. So nothing out of the ordinary at all, just a normal vault, three caskets going in. However, this all changed in 1812, when Thomas Chase, who was the father of the family and the two girls, killed himself and was to be buried in there as well. Now, before we go any further, I want to discuss the vault itself, just to give our listeners a picture. Uh, So, it was made out of carved stone, coral, and concrete, and was a pretty very well-built structure. I mean, it still looks good to this day. So, the concrete walls were two feet thick. So definitely no chance of just sneaking or chiseling your way inside. And this vault had a subterranean chamber for its caskets. So you actually had to descend a short flight of stairs to get to the entrance. And then blocking that entrance was a huge and extremely heavy slab of blue marble. And it was this entrance blocking thing was so heavy that it took a small team of men to pry it to the side each time that the vault was to be open. This is no simple like doorway on some tomb it would take an entire team of men to get this kind of thing open and when i was reading this story i just kind of pictured a a simple rock tomb but this thing in reality is much bigger and they were able to fit an entire family inside of this thing so this is pretty massive yeah i was gonna say yeah i was picturing yeah just one like those small little shed like looking vaults or whatever right but then i looked at pictures and it's like yeah i mean not only is it it's pretty big and it's feet i mean <clears throat> its walls are two feet thick but it's also like underground so it's like you have to get down the stairs and you have to work on the entrance right there so it's definitely pretty tricky yeah you know i'll be sure to post a pic of the vault on our web post if you want to check it out you know but just from the description the pictures that i've seen i find it highly unlikely that one would find it easy accessible to get inside and, I mean, just the fact that it was a very sturdy and thick vault, 
that also happens to be underground will come into play later on when we get to the theories. But before all that, let's just get back to the mystery of the movie Coffins. So as I mentioned, uh, everything started going weird when the fourth casket arrived, and the burial party that opened the vault for the fourth time to bury Thomas Chase, they were astonished at what they found when they cracked it open. So instead of the three occupying caskets being neat and orderly as they were last put, the coffins of the Chase girls were reported to be found in a confused state, having been apparently tossed from their places. So, I mean, they were originally placed, you know, three little nice rows, but then when they opened it up for this fourth time, the people said it looked like the caskets had been, like, picked up and thrown against the wall or something. So, though certainly confusing, this mystery was just getting started. Four years later, another child passed away and was to be placed inside the vault. And again, as the was opened up, the crowd was baffled at seeing that the heavy lead casket was in a state of disarray yet again. No one could figure out what was going on inside this vault. And that's the other thing, is that these caskets, these weren't just like wooden caskets. These were solid lead. So nothing that can be easily just tossed around. It's not like some natural cause. The the wind didn't blow in and knock over the caskets. These things were tossed big time. Yeah, it's like it, it took... They said it's like pretty much to carry them in. It took like six big strong men to carry these caskets in. So the fact that they were, you know, moved all around or even looked like they were thrown about suggests that something or someone very powerful was doing it. So this trend continued for several years leading up to 1819. So every once in a while, the vault would be inspected again. And each time they would always find that the caskets inside were in a different position than when they were placed before sealing the vault previously. So, I mean, by now this mystery of the chase vault had just spread like wildfire across Barbados. So it's rumored that huge crowds of people would come across the island whenever the vault would be reopened so that they could see for themselves what was going on. And just the, the legends and the superstitions were just spreading surrounding this case and pretty much just reaching crazy hype levels. And it is written that the slaves on the island wanted nothing to do with what was going on on the church grounds near the seemingly haunted vault, and they just refused to work in the churchyard. It was almost like some sort of celebrity had come to the island because people were freaking out so much, and everybody just really wanted to get a little glimpse of what would what, what had occurred inside the tombs when they would open it. Yeah, I mean, I guess... I mean, the island is relatively small, so when you have something this weird going on, oh, yeah. you know, everybody, like, everybody knew about it. Right. So, this, I mean, it's definitely, like, the, the story of the year. So, one of the last openings of the Chase Vault, the governor of Barbados, Viscount Combermere, and his wife were present. And, I mean, the governor just wanted to get to the bottom of this mystery and put the case to rest, as, as we were talking about this the hype was just un- unreal, and the unease it was causing in the population was starting to take its toll. Ugh. Excuse me. Yeah. So his wife, Lady Combermere, wrote about the vault in her diary, saying, In my husband's presence, every part of the floor was sounded to ascertain that no subterranean passage or entrance was concealed. It was found to be perfectly firm and solid, and not even a crack was apparent. 
The walls, when examined, proved to be perfectly secure. No fracture was visible, and the sides, together with the roof and flooring, present a structure so solid as if formed of entire slabs of stone. The displaced coffins were rearranged, the new tenant of that dreary abode was deposited, and when the mourners retired with the funeral procession, the floor was sanded with fine white sand in the presence of Lord Combermere and the assembled crowd. The door was slid into its wonted position, and with the utmost care, the new mortar was laid on so as to secure it. So basically, they just they put the new body in, they put this white sand, and they sealed it up as tight as they could. They didn't want anybody getting in there at all. And I, I don't want to get ahead of you, so if I am, just stop. But the purpose of the sand was to indicate that if somebody had somehow managed to get through this the walls of this massive tomb that they would possibly leave footprints behind or disturb it in some way. Yeah, exactly. Or even if it was some kind of natural occurrence like a flood, basically whatever was going on in that vault, it would leave some kind of disturbance with the sand. Although you think if some people are smart enough to get into this seemingly impenetrable vault, they would be smart enough to smooth the sand once they were done. I don't know. Uh, regardless, sometime later, once the governor and some others came to inspect the vault, they found that once again the coffins had been disarrayed as if thrown about. Reportedly, the casket of Dorcas Chase had been smashed, and that her bony decaying arm was hanging out through a hole in the side. So Combermere and his men could find nothing, no clues as to what caused this. There were no marks in the sand, as we said, no footprints or anything. The seals that were made in the cement around the, the opening was intact when they got there, so there was just no obvious signs that anybody had you know gotten to the vault at all, but still these caskets were all thrown all over the place. At, at, honestly, at this point when I was reading the story, I was like, okay, when I was reading this for the first time, I was like, okay, at this point, they're going to figure out what has happened. Like, There's no way that this could continue to go unexplained. I mean, they had people watching this basically all the time, so. Yeah, it's like each time they sealed it up, they were, like, adding another layer of protection or exactly. trying to figure out something else that would catch them, but no matter what they did, every time they opened it, all the caskets inside were rearranged. Yep. So there was a man named Nathan Lucas, and he was a member of that party who was inspecting the vault with Lord Combermere. And he also recorded the event's writing. And so I examined the walls, the arch, and every part of the vault to find every part old and similar. A mason in my presence struck every part of the bottom with his hammer, and all of it was solid. I confess myself at a loss to account for the movements of these leaden coffins. Thieves certainly have no hand in it, and as for any practical wit or hoax, too many were requisite to be trusted with a secret for it to remain unknown. All I know is that it happened and that I was an eyewitness. So I like that quote. I mean, I like what he says that, as we mentioned before, you would need, like, a team of men to pull this off. I mean, not only to get inside, but to move these coffins around. And, I mean, you, you figure if you have, you know, 10 or 12 guys who are doing it over and over again, sooner or later one of them would slip up and say something. But, yeah. I mean, nothing like that happened, so... yeah. Yeah, so whatever Nathan Lucas wrote was, I mean, makes sense. So, I mean, 
at this point, mass hysteria was just building to a near insanity level on the island. And Lord Kabamir decided that it was just time to end it all. They couldn't figure out what was going on. He just gave up trying to solve the mystery. And to restore peace on the island, he just ordered that all the bodies that were in the chase vault be carried out and reburied in separate burial sites across the churchyard. Um, other tellings say that it was the Chase family who made the decision to have the vault vacated. I guess they were tired of having their name associated with this haunted uh, vault. Um, regardless, the caskets were all taken out and buried elsewhere. So, I mean, whoever gave this order, reportedly, the vault was completely emptied out, and after that, there was no mysterious events surrounding it. Uh, one last little tidbit that I left out earlier that I thought was interesting. So supposedly the very first casket that was laid in the vault was the wife of a man named James Elliot. James Elliot was actually responsible for building this burial structure. However, later on in 1807, when Mrs. Thomasina Goddard was to be buried inside also, the casket of Mrs. Elliot had simply vanished. Now, there are really no explanations for this. There's not much written about it uh, beyond perhaps someone stealing her casket or perhaps she was never actually put inside in the first place. But, I mean, once it's just another mysterious aspect to this case that I found pretty interesting. All right, so let's get down to the theories. And basically the theories can be broken down into two categories, basically depending on if you believe these events actually happened. Now, many people today believe that the so-called documentation regarding the moving coffins may have been entirely made up or fabricated later on just to stir up interest in this mystery. That definitely jumps out to me as probably one of the most logical explanations because as an individual who's pretty much based in reality for the most part, I don't see how, if all the facts of this story were true, how there could be any possible logical explanation. The other thing was that... that this tomb was not just like sealed up for a couple days at a time. It was left sealed for months or even years before yeah. it would be opened up again. So it's not like somebody was inside the coffin playing a trick and then jumping out at the last second to go run away. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is pretty hard if this story is actually true to figure out a reason for it to, you know, that would actually explain what's going on. So, I mean, all right, so first we'll get into the theories that under the assumption that all these strange and creepy occurrences actually did happen and what possible reasons have come that have caused these so-called moving coffins. So one of the first one is, you know, either vandalism or break-in. So as I mentioned earlier, the main thought was that some group of men were breaking in and, you know, for whatever reason, they were throwing the caskets around. I mean, there was nothing valuable in the chase vault, so there would be real no reason that thieves would break into it. And just the fact that I was opening over and over again, I don't know if it was some kind of, like, prank or something that these people were supposedly doing. Nah, I don't buy it. I mean, this... this... <laughs> event at the time was like the super bowl everybody was watching and it'd be very difficult to have a bunch of guys get in there pry open a giant marble door and then toss some lead coffins around reseal it and then escape 
unbeknownst to anybody. It just doesn't seem very likely to me. Uh, I mean, then even if you did it and you're all excited, you know, like, hey, we did this, guys. And it's like, oh, now we have to wait for another member of the Chase family to die. And sometimes it took years. So it's like, that's either that's like an extremely long waiting prank. Yeah. Or this. Eh, I'm with you. It, it just the fact that it would take so many guys to actually open the vault and to move the caskets around and that. You know, all these guys who were inspecting it, there was no secret entrance or way in, and just no signs that anyone was ever in the vault or breaking the seals around the entrance. So, yeah, I, I don't buy that vandalism or breaking and entering theory. The next one is kind of interesting. It's that some kind of force of nature was causing it. So either an earthquake or flooding, which was a problem there. Um, I mean, the problem... The issue with this theory, though, is that there were no major earthquakes really reported in the area during the few years that this mystery spanned, and no other coffins or vaults in the churchyard were affected in the same way. So you figure if there's an earthquake, everything's shaking, why is it only happening in the chase vault? The same thing with the sand that was put down on the ground, it no sh- it showed no sign of disturbance, which also ruled out a flood. So, I mean, if a flood was washing all the caskets around, you know, the sand wouldn't have been laid out so nicely and perfectly as it was when they first put it down. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, I can see that being a reasonable explanation, but there were no signs of it and it didn't affect any of the nearby vaults around it. So, I don't know, unless there's some kind of like spring underneath the vault that was shooting up water at random times. I just don't see this happening. Nah, I mean, the guy said he inspected it and didn't find anything. He inspected the inside of the tomb and it's completely sound, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think we could check that one off the list. Yeah, so that's another no-go in our opinion. The next one, I, I don't even know how they came up with, but apparently another theory is that the gas emitting from the decomposing bodies somehow levitated the caskets and threw them around um oh yeah because i've seen (laughs) i've seen that happen before oh yeah it's very well documented (laughs) in scientific history yeah (laughs) i mean unless they every single person in there had like really bad mexican food and then immediately died (laughs) and they're just building up inside them i i don't see how you have enough gas in your body that it could move a casket that weighed several hundred pounds. Yeah. I mean, let alone throw them across the vault. It, it's just ridiculous. It's funny to think about. That, that, that would be pretty spectacular to witness. Yeah. And you think there'd be... Yeah, I mean, if it's, a, if it's an airtight vault, you'd figure that some kind of smell would be associated with uh, that massive gas explosion or whatever <laughs> building up inside them. But <laughs> the, <laughs> anyway. the entire island would smell it. Yeah, you think you think the vault was just a crack open or something? Like <laughs> yeah, it's like the uh, scene in the Mummy when they open up the they try to open up that vault and like all that gas or acid sprays on them and their faces are burning off. <laughs> uh, all right. So no gas theory. Um, the last one also, I mean, I guess depending on what your beliefs are, it's either ridiculous or reasonable is a supernatural theory. And Eric mentioned Sherlock Holmes earlier, which is kind of fitting because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who's the creator of Sherlock Holmes, who has 
pretty interested in this case. And he theorized that the spirits of Dorcas and Thomas Chase were causing this unrest. And this idea is supported by the fact that the movement of the coffins only started after Dorcas's casket was laid to rest in the vault and before Thomas, uh, Thomas's casket arrived. And the reasoning behind this is that if there was some kind of ghostly unrest that was causing the movement, is that Thomas Chase, who was the father of Dorcas and Anne Maria, who were already laid inside the, who were already buried inside the vault. Thomas was said to be abusive to his family and just a sadistic man and cruel to his slaves. So it is rumored that Dorcas Chase, his daughter, actually killed herself when she could no longer live with her abusive and cruel father. And just a short while after Dorcas was laid to rest in the vault, I think it was, I mean, it might have just been like a month or two, her father Thomas Chase committed suicide. Uh, maybe he was feeling some type of guilt over what he did to his daughter, or maybe he just got sick of being a dick. I don't know. And it was basically, it was only later when Thomas was to be added to the vault, and they opened it to lay him in there, was the first case of these moving coffins discovered. So, I mean, maybe it could be true that the spirits of the Chase girls, or maybe just Dorcas, were conflicting with the arrival with their tyrant of a father? You know, I typically like to entertain the supernatural explanations and stuff, but honestly, in this particular case, I'm a little bit disappointed in Mr. Sir Conan Doyle, given that all of his Sherlock Holmes stories, Sherlock Holmes always seeks logic and what can be explained through reason, and this doesn't really seem to explain anything at all reasonably so i was a little disappointed but yeah it's like it's like a cop-out it's like the easiest theory is like oh it's ghost yeah yeah exactly it seems like what all the antagonists in sherlock holmes stories would use to explain these mysteries and sherlock holmes would always go after what what could be explained scientifically and this is not a scientific explanation so but yeah, definitely and, and all, an interesting historical perspective. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are quite a few people who are really into the supernatural that could make a better case for it. But I just, I mean, there wasn't any proof of anything supernatural. So, yeah, I, I don't buy into that. So, I mean, we have all these theories. I mean, some more logical than others, and some are just ridiculous. But... As we, as Eric, you mentioned earlier, probably one of the more reasonable and likely explanation is that the case of the moving coffins never actually happened. So this skeptic's opinion theory is just that despite all the legends and writings about the story of the Chase Vault, it never actually occurred. So some believe that the vault was never occupied at all. So I mean, obviously there were never was any mystery of moving coffins. And all the recording and writings about the case were fabricated by others later on. I guess just to, you know, maybe there was a local superstition and they just try to make it bigger than it actually was. So the explanation behind this is that there were never any burial records found at the church about anyone who was ever put in the chase vault. While the rest of the grounds and all the other vaults were very well documented. 
I guess you could say that a counter to that, though, is that if they were records, they could be destroyed or misplaced somewhere down the line. I mean, since this is such a big case on a relatively small island, I'm sure a lot of the people there wanted to get their hands on such documents. I mean, I don't... Hell, maybe even Governor Kavamir confiscated the re confiscated the records for some reasoning. Uh, what we do know for certain, though, from the records at the time, is that there was, in fact, a Chase family on Barbados at the time, and the documents calling the structure the Chase Vault. And the fact that this vault has remained empty all this time perhaps also is another clue leaning towards that maybe this mystery did happen after all. I don't know why else you would have this big vault in a churchyard sitting empty for basically 200 years. Um, but that's true. There is, a, but there there is a. Oh, there you go. I was just gonna say, if you're gonna make up a story to make people think something special, something special happened on your island, why not make it a more interesting story? I mean, yeah, this is pretty crazy and weird if it was true, but. It's actually almost like all the investigation they did makes it impossible for it to be true. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's like all the theories that we came up with, it's like none of them even have a chance of being true. Yeah. So there's like literally no answer at all to this mystery. Although perhaps, I mean, it did happen such a long time ago. Maybe it happened one time. Or, you know, it, it might have not been to the extent of that we know it now, and it was just exaggerated, or, you know, people threw their own spin on it later on and just made it into this weird mystery that it is today. So, I mean, it's kind of hard just because there are no really good documents about the case besides a few diary entries. Um, yeah, I, I just don't know. I mean, it's definitely interesting. It makes for a good campfire story i guess yep but for any logical explanations if it actually did happen i have no idea i'll, I'll go with the gas theory hill I don't there know. you go that's the best thing we no. got yep so that wraps it up for this episode of the strange matters podcast if you would like to reach us to send feedback on this episode or provide more details about the case please feel free to email us at strange matters podcast at gmail.com also, if you would like to make suggestions for further episodes, please feel free to email us. And if you would like to check out our website, we can be found on the internet at strangematterspodcast.com. Also, if you would like to listen to us on iTunes and provide a rating, we'd really appreciate it. It means a lot. Um, so please rate us on iTunes. Until next time at Strange Matters Podcast, have a good one. All right, take it easy, everybody.